Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine Radio Show. The show where a long shank is exactly that. It's a long shank. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Ooh, welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly broadcast. And I'm your host, Brian Levine, uh, coming to you on Tuesday morning, and that's going to be important in just a minute. Uh, this week's show in Pipe Parts, uh, we're going to school. We're going to get a little lesson on the history of the word tobacco. And then my guest is uh, artist and uh, pipe maker Todd Brugman. It was a lot of fun getting to talk to Todd. And then uh, even after we were done recording, I got to spend some time talking to him about his art. So love, I just love talking to passionate artists. Uh, anyway, and then music by request, mailbag, and rant. All that coming up on this week's episode of the Pipes Magazine radio show. Now, as I am sitting here recording this, uh, Hurricane Ida had gone through Louisiana and is in the Mississippi and Tennessee Valley as a tropical depression. I tried this morning to get a hold of some folks in the uh, St. James Parish, in the Perique world in particular, to find out how they were and how they were doing. Could not get a hold of anybody, so I do not have any news on how the uh, Perique is doing. I uh, can't even uh, couldn't get through to my friend John David Cole to see how the country squire is doing in uh, Jackson. So hope everybody is okay. Hopefully next week I will be able to uh, have talked to everybody and have an idea. So there you go. All right. A uh, reminder before we get started, uh, please go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or review. That would be much appreciated. We do greatly appreciate those. And if you're on Facebook or any, any of those uh, pipe groups, share the Pipes Magazine radio show. Let them know you're listening. Let them know you uh, tolerate it. <laughs> Let them know you might like it. All right, so let's get the show rolling. Everybody sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in, and here we go. There's nothing quite like hunting at dawn or smoking my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe, an American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. Check them out at corncobpipe.com. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, and we're going to get a little education thrown at us here. All right, so my mom, who is a uh, retired a uh, college teacher taught uh, English and anthropology and has a master's degree in linguistics or something like that. Uh, every once in a while, she'll send me an article that she stumbles across about tobacco. And it might be fair to say that she was not always a fan of me being in the tobacco industry or being a user of tobacco. But anyway, uh, this article is from Lexicon Valley, and it's titled The Birth of Tobacco. Now, at the beginning, we're going to have to get through some academia, slanted, anti-tobacco verbiage, gibberish. But anyway, uh, it's, this is interesting. Here it goes. Uh, this, and the article says, the story goes that Native Americans had a word for that plant that now gets packed into cigarettes. That story is wrong. For more than a century, 
Big Tobacco has been blowing smoke rings of dissemblance around a public too addicted to nicotine to take, to take notice. But long before Joe Camel lumbered onto the scene with Marlboro Man and Virginia Slims, a man named Gonzalo Fernandez de Oviedo y Valdez was blowing smoke too. It turns out that the story of the word tobacco itself was built rather fittingly upon false information. Oviedo arrived in the New World in the early 16th century and spent several subsequent decades colonizing and chronicling what we now call the West Indies and Central America. Through his Historio General y Natural de los Indias, Oviedo introduced to his fellow Europeans back home, much to their relaxation and delectation, the hammock, the pineapple, and to their, and to their great detriment, tobacco. Nicotiana tabacum, the commercially cultivated variety of the native Caribbean plant, has since spawned what is arguably the largest man-made health crisis in history, efficiently disseminating pollution and disease via a three-inch long tube, discarded pieces of which can be found embedded in sidewalk cracks around the world. All right, let me just stop right here and say that uh, Oviedo was doing his... Uh, rollicking around in the 16th century and the machine made cigarette was uh really you know got started in the 1920s so what 400 years all right give him a break and uh you know thanks for the anti-ness all right we're over that uh in his historio oviedo describes and and even sketches a y-shaped instrumento from what he called the island of Espanola, or modern-day Haiti. It was effectively a three-pronged pipe, whereby the arms of the Y are inserted in the nostrils and smoke inhaled through the stem. This instrument, says Oviedo, is called by the indigenous population Tabaco, T-A-B-A-C-O, unleashing the word that would eventually settle on the spelling of tobacco. Oviedo is accurate in describing this, uh, this habit as among the various vices of the island, a particularly bad one. Uh, why would someone stick a tube up his nose and breathe in burning plant matter to begin with? Uh, to get out of their senses? Of course. He was less accurate, it seems, in relating a few of the actual facts. In an 1889 article in the journal American Anthropologist, Dr. A. Ernst, director of the National Museum in Caracas, Venezuela, points out flaws in the account of Oviedo. For example, the name of that hollow instrument carved from the bones of a taper is Taboca, T-A-B-O-C-A, not taba, Tabaco, T-A-B-A-C-O. Also, the taboca was apparently not for smoking, but rather for absorbing some exciting powder. This certainly may have been that of dried tobacco leaves mixed perhaps with some other substance, as I'm not quite sure that the physiological effect of pure tobacco powder would be of the intensity which Oviedo indicates. In other words, according to Ernst, the taboca was for inhaling snuff of some sort, a practice common among the Guarani people, G-U-A-R-A-N-I, 
of South America from whose language the term emerged and later migrated. In Guarani, Taboca is also the name of a tall, bambusish grass, the hollow internodes of which were probably employed for the purpose mentioned, i.e. getting high, before the more refined use of the bones of the taper became a fashion. It's understandable, however, that Oviedo would confuse the word taboca with tabaco, since the latter was indeed an implement for smoking, just not the instrumento that Oviedo depicted in his Historia. Bartolome de la Casas, a contemporary of Oviedo who wrote his own Historia de las Indias, has the following account of Christopher Columbus's crewmates, some of whom walked around what is now Cuba when they landed there in November of 1492. They met upon their journey great numbers of people of both sexes going to their villages, the men always with a firebrand in their hands and certain herbs for smoking. These are dry and fixed in a leaf also dry, after the manner of those paper tubes which the boys in Spain use at Whitsuntide. Having lighted one end, they draw in the smoke by sucking at the other. This causes a drowsiness and sort of intoxication, and according to their accounts, relieves them from the sensation of fatigue. These tubes they call by the names tabacos. Why then, if La Casa defined tobacco more or less correctly, is he not credited or blamed more appropriately? With bringing the word to Europe. Well, the initial volumes of Oviedo's Historia were published in 1535, while the Las Casas writings were published later, much later, as in the 1800s. Also, none of this suggests an, an actual etymology of tobacco, or if that was even the correct pronunciation, which we'll likely never learn with any certainty. As Dr. A. Ernst put it, we must not forget that the word tobacco, as written by the Spaniards, is probably not a faithful rendering of the term used by the Indians. You may have noticed, too, that both Oviedo and Las Casas used the word tobacco to refer to the delivery system. How did it come to indicate the plant, whether burned, snorted, or chewed? Indeed, tobacco came very quickly to denote the leaves themselves as exemplified by William Harrison's descriptions of England in the 1570s. In these days, the taking in of the smoke of the Indian herb called tobacco by an instrument formed like a little ladle whereby it passeth from the mouth into the head and stomach is greatly taken up and used in England. Again, Dr. A. Ernst explains this exceedingly well. The Spaniards, of course, never thought of inquiring into the real meaning of the word, which was to them a matter of no interest whatever. Those comparatively small bands of adventurers who opened the gates of the New World adopted unhesitatingly any name, whether right or wrong, they heard or believed, they heard for the many new and strange productions of an exuberant nature, which pressed on them at every step. We may thus understand how it resulted in that the word tobacco came soon to be so universally used for this most important commodity 
that it superseded altogether the real name which the inhabitants of the Antilles had for the plant, so that the latter is not even once mentioned in the profuse writings of Oviedo, Las Casas, and other historians of the Spanish conquest in the West Indian islands. So what was the real name of, that the indigenous people of Haiti and the Dominican Republic used? In the Arawakan language of the Caribbean, the word for tobacco is generally translated as Yuli, Y-U-L-I. Of course, it doesn't much matter anymore what we call it, Bartolomeu de las Casas. I knew many Spaniards in the island of Española who were addicted to the use of them, and on being reproached with it as a bad habit, replied that they could not bring themselves to give it up. I do not see what relish or benefit they could find from it. Uh, big tobacco, big yuli, either way the damage has already been done. So there you go. I know that's long and I uh, stumbled through some of it because there's a lot of big words in there. Uh, but essentially, you know, when tobacco was discovered here in the New World, it really is yuli, Y-U-L-I. So uh, now we can all use that code word. We're all smoking our yuli and uh, nobody will know what we're talking about. Hope you enjoyed that. Again, if you want to go look it up, it's uh, Lexicon Valley, the birth of tobacco. And uh, the, I thought the article was interesting. So in just a few moments, uh, Todd Brugman. This is Internet Radio. Being at the forefront of craft tobacco production for over 20 years, we've been involved in some rather interesting projects at Cornell and from the Cellar Series to the Small Batch Project, we're extremely proud of how far we've come. So moving forward, we wanted to take it back to basics, and that's what the Burley Flake Series is all about. Burley is an underrated varietal, but there is a ton of nuance there. Using various condimental tobaccos to accentuate different aspects of the air-cured leaf, each blend in this series is intended to showcase different individual subtleties inherent to Burley. It's a simple concept, one that I think really speaks to the essence of what we do at CND as a crew of folks who just love tobacco. It's also really good. Cornell and Deal's Burley Flakes series, wherever fine tobaccos are sold. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, and joining us is uh, Todd. I'm just going to say you are a Renaissance man. You are an artist and an up and coming pipe maker, and I'm excited to uh, to get to talk to you. But Todd Brugman, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm very humbled to be here. All right, so let's get to know you. Where where did you grow up? And that does sound like a real authentic Boston accent. But uh, where where did you grow up? When did you grow up? And uh, and and why? So why? Because my parents uh, had me one night. Uh, I grew up in the <laughs> Boston area, uh, so it is an authentic Boston accent. I'll bet not heavy for this area. I don't <laughs> notice it, but I am sure it is there. I grew up twenty minutes north of Boston. Uh, Hung out in Boston growing up. I've lived in this area my whole life. Uh, it was a short period in my early 20s. I'm 38 now. Um, I lived in New York City uh, as part of the skateboard industry for a while. I worked for a skateboard company there for a couple of years. Um, I ran a skateboard shop in Boston for a while. And, uh, you know, that's the gist of it. You know, I've been in this area. I live in uh, Boston with my wife and my Beagle Maxine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, 
I like it. Uh, so, wait, so you got a beagle? Now you got me really intrigued. I'm so jealous. <laughs> Uh, does yes. she does does she tell you when it's time for you to take her out for a walk? No, I tell her. She tells me when there's a rabbit in the backyard. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh well, you're fancy. You got a backyard then. A small one, but we got a backyard. Big for the city, but that's about <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. So when did I, I'm guessing the uh, I'm guessing the artist Todd came before the pipe maker Todd. Yes. So I have always had a, uh, a drive to create in any sense, but I, I grew up in, you know, regular blue collar, lower middle class Boston home. Um, my parents noticed that I liked coloring in the lines when I was three, four years old. And in kindergarten, because uh, my parents worked, they signed me up for, I think, an after school class where I could do art and draw. And uh, they always encouraged that, which was nice. I did other, I played hockey, I played soccer, I played Little League. I played other sports as well. I skateboarded, obviously, as I yeah. skateboarding before. Um, I did all of that, but I just always really enjoyed drawing. Um, and, you know, just like there's one kid pointed out in every class, I'd say, in the United States, where he's the class clown, they're the this, <laughs> so on and so forth. Teachers often referred to me as the quote-unquote artist of the class um for better or worse i sometimes personally think that skips over kids who could be artists uh they have the creativity but nobody at home tells them that and the teacher doesn't but it worked out for me it helped me um it always got, gave me that encouragement uh when i was around 12 years old my parents were kind enough to sign me up to take uh, courses at a local college montserrat college of art on the north shore of boston um it's in Beverly. That's when I started studying figure drawing, and that's when I first started oil painting. And oil painting has become a passion of mine. Um, that's what that's my main medium today. I've dabbled in printmaking for a while and uh, other media, but oil painting is what I really love. It's my favorite media. I like the physicality of it. I like the smell of the oil paints. I really like the everything about it. The whole aesthetic. Everything about working with oils. Now we're we're talking like the, uh, you know, like the one like the oil painting where you get a little bit out on your palette and you and and you're mixing and layering and doing all that stuff, right? Exactly. Yep. I have a palette. I hold on my arm. Uh, I have a studio in Boston. You know, I put out the colors I need. I mix them with a palette knife. Put in the amount of oil or other media that I need. I'll build up the layers on the canvas, underpainting to the final layer to the glazes. To get that effect, um, you know, I am very much classically trained, even though my work is very abstract or contemporary. Uh, I, I really studied uh, Rembrandt and the way that he layered his own colors. And that's mm -hmm. actually the process that I use from underpainting all the way to glazing at the top, uh, although uh, compositionally more contemporary. But it. So, so you did you you did go and get some classical training. This isn't just natural ability, and you saying, "Hey, I think I can do this." Absolutely, yes. I've gotten a lot of classical training, and as far as natural ability goes, I believe everyone has that. Just like everyone has, you know, there's uh, one or two kids that are really good at math in school, and they go on to become mathematicians. But every kid couldn't learn math and go so far. Some people go to algebra. Some people stop at calculus. 
Some people go through, get a PhD in some mathematical field. I believe everyone can learn how to draw. And by draw, I mean render from life. Everyone can learn that skill. Just like, you know, 100 years ago, every biologist had to draw the plant they saw. They could learn that skill. But creativity, that's something that's more innate. That's something that's more from within that can't be taught. And it really takes a combination of the two. So what I was talking about before is what my teachers noticed that I had an ability to render from life um, without being necessarily taught. Uh, luckily, uh, and I'm going to lose all humi- humility here, <laughs> I have more creativity than most average people display when creating art. Um, so that has definitely benefited me. And, but creativity is something like anything else. It's like a muscle. The more you work at it, the more you think about it, the better you get. So there is some natural uh, uh, skill involved, but it takes, you know, practice and study like everything else, you know, and that could go to my pipe making. You know, I am a creative, physical person who likes working with their hands, but I'm still learning. You know, after two and a half years of working with pipes, apprenticing, I am still working with my hands, and it's something I feel like I'll be studying for the rest of my life. It's like I feel like I'm a student of art, and I'll be a student of art till the day I die. When did the fascination with pipes come into your life? So I've been smoking uh, for about 10 years, but before that, in my early 20s, I worked at uh, – I'll even back up a little further. So when I was around uh, 18, I, thought I started smoking cigars going to cigar shops and I got fairly into cigars for a little while, fell out of them. And then I was working as a bread baker. I came in very early in the morning, around three in the morning at a place called Breads of Bits of Ireland. It's in Melrose on the North shore of Boston. And one of the owners, um, Tim, he was, you know, right off the boat from Ireland. He smoked the pipe inside every day, even though (laughs) you legally couldn't, but he did anyways and nobody cared. (laughs) <laughs> and I ended up buying a corncob pipe from a CVS right next door, and sometimes he'd give me his tobacco. I smoked cigarettes at that time, but there I could smoke a pipe, and I enjoyed that. And I worked there for about a year and a half, and then when that was done, I didn't smoke a pipe, and occasionally I still would. I would have phases where I'd get into cigars, fall out of cigars, and then I I quit smoking, but I, I told my wife, you know, oh, I think I want to smoke a pipe again. I enjoyed that. I remember the smell. Uh, it was just something that I remember seeing them, even when I first started buying cigars, seeing them in cases at the cigar shops and just seeing the beauty of them. And I was really drawn to them. And I don't know what, if it was a birthday or if it was uh, Christmas, but my wife got me a pipe, just a basket pipe uh, from a local convenience store. It might have been a Dr. Graveau. I'm not sure what it was. I forget what it was. I don't have it. And uh, that kicked it off. Is the pipe kind of, uh, I mean, is the pipe now, is it a, or was it then, was it more of a a relaxing thing, just end of the day, kind of wind down with it? Yeah. When I I started off, I smoked it just about every day in the evening. I started off, uh, I think my first few pouches were Captain Black White. I think that's very common for people in the United States, especially these days. And uh, for a couple months, that's what I smoked. Then there's um, a smoke shop very, uh, pretty close to me in Cambridge, Levitt and Pierce. Yep. And I went there, 
and I started getting some of their tobaccos. I started off with sweeter Cavendishes, and uh, I really loved them. And uh, I owned a skateboard shop at this time, and I would sm- smoke once or twice during the day. I'd step out, you know, in front and have a pipe. Um, and then later, maybe I'd have a pipe with a cup of tea or a cup of coffee in the morning, and I'd have like probably four, about four pipes a day. And uh, that that went on for about three or four years like that. Um, and there are Cavendish tobaccos. If I smoked too much, I'd get tongue bite. I wasn't the best at smoking. I didn't really talk to anybody about how to do it. I didn't look much up on the internet. And then um, I was going through Boston. I had been to a shop called LJ Peretti's before to buy cigars when I was a little bit younger. But I hadn't been there for a while, and I stopped in there, and I talked to a gentleman there. And uh, he helped me out. He introduced me to a whole new world of tobaccos, Burleys. I didn't know what Burleys were. (laughs) English blends, flakes. And this went on. And uh, for a number of years, you know, I only smoked their tobaccos. And I went through basically their entire catalog of about 200 tobaccos that they have available, just smoking those before I even got a tin from them. But uh, that's where I really, about 90% of my uh, tobacco pipe knowledge, I would say, comes from L.J. Peretti's, possibly, if it's just the tobacco, from Steve Willett, the yeah. owner. He is really great. He Every time he recommends something from me, whether it was years ago or today, I love it, you know, or I like it, you know, but he's never recommended something to me that I don't like. I Once I went in there, and uh, someone had recommended Mixture 79, and they had it, and I asked, I was going to buy a pouch. And he said, no, Todd, you will not like that. Uh, I don't think so. Here, I have a pouch. He actually will smoke it from time to time. He goes, you can have the rest of this. He gave me my pouch. He was right. I didn't like it. So he's gotten to know me, and that's what's really great. He knows his customers. This is why I like going to small brick-and-mortar shops, whatever it is. You know, I'm biased. I owned a small brick and mortar, a skateboard shop for many years, and I believe in uh, supporting those um, and going to them as long as they exist in your community. If they don't, of course, you need to buy offline, and I buy things online as well. But I like the customer service. I like the community, and that's where I started to really find a pipe-smoking community. I started to get really into it. I started to appreciate the nuances of different tobaccos, smoking Virginia's, and really smoking them slower, learning how to smoking them on my own, and just um, smoking them slower, picking up the nuances, appreciating it uh, for what they are, and just getting a whole new pleasure out of it where it almost became a meditative experience. And it still is that meditative experience for me. And uh, when I work, if I get a mental block, a creative block, I'll step outside my studio or stay inside my studio because I will say, I know three places in Boston you can smoke inside. They're in the north end of Boston. There is um, the smoking lounge. You got LJ Freddy's, and you got the Todd Brugman Studio Gallery. If you walk in <laughs> with a pipe, you can smoke it. And I'll smoke in there, depending on the weather, or if I want some fresh air, I'll step outside. And I'll sit down, look away from the canvas, and it clears my head. It's meditative. And I know I'm not the only one. I've read you know, famous people like Einstein saying things like this, and also lay people across the internet and all, all over the place saying how it clears their head. It's a meditative, almost Eastern experience. At least that's how I feel. That's a perfect place for us to take a break. When we come back, we'll have more with uh, 
pipe maker and artist Todd Brugman. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. Have a look in your tobacco cellar. What do you see? Think of what you smoke, what you age, what you're drawn to in a blend that keeps you wanting more. That's your taste. And whether you know it or not, you've been leading that expedition since you first picked up a pipe just by smoking what you like and liking what you smoke. But the funny thing about taste, it changes and you need a wide selection to accommodate it. We at Smoking Pipes know this, and you know it too. So whether you're searching for a tried and true favorite or a singular boutique mixture, we're here to help you navigate the voyage of your evolving tastes. But you're still at the helm. Smoking Pipes, in faithful service of the hobby. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show visiting with Todd Brugman of uh, the great city of Boston, which I absolutely love the city of Boston. It's completely a unique city in the United States. Um, Todd, did you ever smoke a pipe while riding a skateboard? I did. Uh, you know, when, I, when I used to smoke cigarettes, you know, I would smoke a cigarette sometimes and you know, skateboard. Uh, and that's a common thing. Cigarettes are very different, though, and I think anyone who has yeah. smoked both knows that. Uh, I don't smoke cigarettes anymore. If people want to smoke them, I think they have the right to. That's my own belief. I don't think there's anything wrong with them. I don't believe they're per- that healthy, but people can do what they want. That's my own <laughs> personal belief. But smoking a pipe is a little bit different. Um, but just doing what would be called street skating, no, no, but uh, <laughs> bowl skating, which is on a like a swimming pool. It looks like a swimming pool, but now they're often just poured for skateboarding, which we have what's called the Lynch Family Skate Park in Boston. It's the biggest uh, public skate park on the East Coast. I would skate the bowl sometime, uh, bowls sometimes while smoking a bowl and drop <laughs> in and have it in my pipe. And people would uh, joke, you look like a choo-choo train going around the bowl. Um, <laughs> you know, but I, I, I'd be in the bowl for a minute and a half. My pipe would last for, you know, uh, 45 minutes, so it didn't do much damage. I also do ride uh, uh, a small motorcycle regularly. Now, that doesn't work for smoking a pipe. It's way too hot. If I'm going uh, 100 yards, fine. If I'm going anything further, it's going to probably burn a hole in the side of my pipe. I've tried it, and it's not a good idea. So I want to ask you, as as an artist, and try to... Try to keep that uh, that pipe making ability out of your mind. But when you look okay. at a pipe, what are you what are you looking at? What are you noticing the most? Um, I guess what you know what what in a pipe design really trips your trigger. So it's definitely changed over the years. Um, it's changed as I've begun to make them and as what types I've begun to make. When I first started. It was simply the shape. Uh, I looked at it. That shape was aesthetically pleasing to me. I liked it. Uh, then it became, and I'm talking about English shape chart shapes, and mm-hmm. then it became shape with nice grain. And nice grain to me was typically um, 
you know, vertical, uh, traditional grain, no cross grain, no bird's eye. I didn't quite grasp that yet. I didn't find the beauty in it. I didn't look for it. I just kind of glossed over it. I, I didn't even try and look at it. Uh, and for a long time, I, I looked at it in a very two-dimensional manner. And I loved, and I still do, but, uh, but I find other aspects of them beautiful now, was long, elegant, classic pipes of Canadians, straight billiards, just classic English pipes. Uh, and then when I started making pipes, especially when I started working with free hands and understanding how that grain goes, I'm working on a blowfish right now and starting to see how that grain curves in and I get the small bird's eye uh, panel on one side, other flank, a big bird's eye panel. I start to appreciate a whole new aspect. And then I look at these cross grain pipes and I expect a little bit of bird's eye in one end and then a big bird's eye. I know where the flat toe is. Yeah. I appreciate that. I, I look at it in a three-dimensional way, but also almost a fourth dimension. I wouldn't even know what to call it, fourth dimension, except for like inside the pipe. I'm seeing inside the pipe, and I appreciate that, as well as the silhouette, you know, as well as the, 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 the elegance of how it's going to look. I go for straight pipes, which I find very elegant. So it, it's changed over the years, for sure. But it's interesting how you said you've gotten to that fourth dimension of what's inside the pipe because I've often heard pipe makers talk about, about how their job isn't making a pipe. Their job is getting rid of all the excess wood around the pipe that is already inside the block. Yeah, You know, I haven't heard that from a pipe maker, but I know Michelangelo said that he was revealing the sculpture from the marble. Um, and I can I believe that those could have been said without anyone knowing because it is what you're doing. You know, when you're making a freehand, especially certain freehands like a blowfish, that already exists within the block. You can't really decide what that blowfish is going to look like. You can decide if it's going to have a shank or not or how the stem's going to connect, uh, how big the diameter of the bowl is going to be. But that's about it. And maybe some other little nuances or decorative nuances you could add to it. But the rest is decided, decided by the block of briar that you have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So let, let's go back to pipe making because you're now working under Nick Johnson, who's been at Peretti's for I don't know how long now. But uh, what? He's been there for quite a while. Yeah. 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 What's kind of what was kind of the process for? for you working under him was, you know, what was his, what were the steps he took you through so far and, and how painful has it been? It hasn't been painful at all. You know, it absolutely could be. And I put up with that, but he's really a genuinely nice, compassionate guy. I don't think yeah. anybody could meet him and not like this. Guy. He's just really nice. And I would hang out there a lot. Um, in short, I essentially showed up one day uh, downstairs in the basement where I worked in the pipes and never left. The long story is I uh, had some broken tenons, and uh, we, we would talk a lot. He would pick my brain about color theory and other things. He knew I was a painter. And he, and one day, I think he said, oh, do you want to learn how to fix a tenon? I said, absolutely. And he let me hang out down there. He's like, would you like to do one? And he showed me how to fix a tenon on one of my pipes. I fixed it. And I think I essentially said to him, can I come back next Saturday? You know, I won't get in your way and uh, do something. Oh, yeah, yeah, show up whenever <laughs> you want to. 
and I really took that to heart, and I haven't stopped showing up. Um, and then it, you know, became more of a, an official apprentice. It was very loose at first, but now I'm there every Saturday. If it's during the week, I'll come by depending on my own schedule. I make my own schedule um, with my with my painting. Um, but I'm there every Saturday. I get there, you know, basically at open, and I'm there till close. And I'm in the basement working on the metal lathe, the wood lathe, uh, the sander, the sanding disc, the buffer, doing everything. Um, he started me out, you know, essentially the first uh, month or two, I just made stems. I often even used pre-made stems, but I started just, you know, changing the size of the tendon, tendon to fit, you know, pre-made stumbles. Then I started hand-cutting my own stems, um, which I found is really, you know, the most time-consuming part of the pipe. Um, and then making uh, an entire pipe, stumble and stem, essentially English shape chart. And then he, he always pushes me. I remember he said, well, why don't you do a freehand? I'm like, well, I don't know if I'm ready. He's like, just do it. Just do it. And he just, you know, gave me a block, helped me drill, drill the draft in the bowl. I still wasn't that great at doing it myself at that time. And he said, what are you going to do? I'm like, oh, a volcano. He's like, okay, draw uh, just a bit out on the side. Look at the grade, wet it, sand it. He's like, okay, go for it. And just had me go for it, you know? And then he would come over, oh, I'd bring that in, or I'd change that, or see how the grain's going there, you're going to want to follow that grain to make it appear. And I, w I would say something, no, I think that's a bald spot. He's like, it's not a bald spot, you're just not finding the grain. And he would help me find the grain. And he still does this today. There are less issues of, say, finding the grain today, but all the time I run by him, um, I was by there today working on the stem of a blowfish that was almost a fancy stem, but it's a very, very unique. I'll post it up on my uh, Instagram soon, and people will see it probably by the, when this airs. People will see it. It will be up very, very soon. Um, but I would say I would, was asking him, do you think this should swoop up? I think it should swoop up. I think this line should match this. What do you think? And he generally concurs, or he sometimes would say, you know, what you're doing looks great. I would leave it, you know. And he makes lots of suggestions, and I pick his brain all the time. So I could easily have my own metal lathe, wood lathe, and make the pipes completely on my own, but I don't want to. I actually have a metal lathe, but I got his old metal lathe off of him. But I like him being there. I feel like Two and a half years of making a pipes, you know, under somebody is enough to me. Ten, as many years as I can make pipes by his side, I want to make pipes by his side. I really feel, you know, um, he's an unrecognized uh, uh, pipe maker. You know, he fixes pipes at Peretti's. He makes his own. He sells them there. He does have a full-time job out of there. Uh, but he is brilliant with free hands, ballerinas. He makes beautiful ballerinas. The pipe collector yeah. just got one of his, and they framed it. Uh, seahorses. He's a really brilliant, creative pipe maker. Uh, and he doesn't even promote himself that well. It's just something that he has a true love for doing. And I appreciate that. It's a real love. He's not doing it to make money. He's doing it because he loves it. And that's what makes working with him so easy. Yeah, so, you know, even on his Instagram, 
he'll post, uh, you know, just rant, you know, photos that are very so-so. You could post much better ones, but he's making the pipes because he loves it, and he has a space in Paredes where he can go there and make them, and they'll sell them, and he's purely doing it out of the love of it. And uh, that love comes across when he's teaching his super nice, compassionate guy. Brilliant with pipes, absolutely brilliant. Is it kind of fun for you as an artist? Because I'm assuming most of the time when you're when you're creating your own art, you're by yourself in your own space. But then when you're working with Nick, now you're working with somebody. Yeah, and I enjoy that. You know, I'm not gonna lie. Sometimes you know, and I think anybody who makes their own hours and works out on their own can understand. That there are times where it can get lonely, it can get tedious, it can get boring, and you have to push through it. And then I remind myself, hey, I'm doing what I love, and I do love doing it. Mm-hmm. If I spend a day painting, even if it's a long 10 hours painting, I leave that day with a smile on my face. Then, then when I'm working with Nick, sometimes, and I, I'm always asking him the same questions, hey, you know, if you need me to get out of here because you have other things to do, let me know. And he says, no, you better be here. I enjoy your company. And I know he's being sincere. He's, you know, just a really nice guy. And, uh, you know, we'll often be working side by side, not say a word for hours. Yeah. And then we'll laugh at jokes. We have a lot in common. Uh, he grew he grew up skateboarding. You know, he's 52. He's uh, 14, 15 years older than me. He grew up skateboarding in the early 80s, uh, listening to punk rock. A completely different type of punk rock than I listen to. Um, you know, I listen to punk rock and rockabilly. He thinks my rockabilly is a little bit silly or too country, but that's what I like. Uh, but we have a lot in common. You know, he's almost a peer, even though he's older than me and a mentor. You know, he's a peer for me, and it's a really nice atmosphere to work in. You know, and even Paredes as a whole, it feels like a family there. I go up, I talk to Steve ask him how it's going i take his brain about blending i would love to learn how to blend one day i i just really <laughs> like learning things um i was just recently talking to him about the thanksgiving day blend that they have that will be coming out um it's just it's all interesting to me the pipe tobacco world it's something that gives me so much pleasure and i'm talking about just sitting there smoking the pipe gives me so much pleasure and that's looking at the pipe holding it in my hand seeing the smoke come out of my mouth the taste of the smoke yeah. everything about it the breathing the cadence you know i absolutely love this and i'm interested in every part of it is there something from pipe making that you've taken over into your art has, or has pipe making opened your eyes to something that you've been able to to express in the in the art you make yes in many ways um it's you know given me more uh analogies so for example, so I do art that would be considered abstract to most. Yeah. Um, I might define it a little bit differently, but it's definitely non-representational of physical reality. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people will say, I don't get it. I don't, I don't get it. Before they even look at my work, they say, I don't get it. And mm-hmm. I'll often use the analogy for most lay people of music because everyone likes music. And I'll say, is there any music you like, what, even if it's a song with lyrics, it's, it's in between the lyrics that you like that music, whether it's a guitar solo, whether it's orchestra music, you just like that. They'll often say yes. They'll say, 
well, that's non-representational. That doesn't sound like a dog barking. It doesn't sound like a car, a train. It's just noise, yet it's emoting something that's intrinsically human that you can feel, and that's why you like it. And when you look at a painting, you don't need it. Just like you don't need to know how to play an instrument, you don't need to know how to paint. You don't need to have taken art history. You just have to appreciate that. And, um, you know, uh, you know, the same thing has gone into pipes where it goes into appreciating a pipe. Or if we talk about English shape chart pipes, a Canadian, well, that's non-representational of anything else. Someone just made that shape. Yeah. Um, then even when you get into free hands, well, you get into a blowfish or a seahorse, well, it kind of looks like a seahorse or a ballerina. kind of looks like a ballerina. So those are more abstract shun. But then when they're following the grain, it's nature or it's organic. These are abstract shapes that people are finding beauty in. So it's giving me analogies, and it's allowed me to understand my own work on a deeper level. When I'm following the curve of a pipe, and it's like, no, that heel doesn't look right. Let me make it a little bit more curved. There's no reason, there's no mathematical reason in a book that I could look up. Yep, that's the curve it needs to be. It's just what feels right. And that's the same when I'm drawing a curve on a paper I'll, uh, or on a canvas. I'll erase it and get it just perfect, adjusted by millimeters. This might be an eight-foot canvas, but I'll still adjust it by millimeters till it looks just right. I don't know why it's right, but I know it feels good. It emotes a sense of humanity, it uh, emotes a sense of beauty, and all these, you know, to anything that pleasure comes from, whether it's pipe smoking, music, fine art, visual art, you know, I really think there's a lot of commonalities between them. Let's talk about your art specifically. The website is Todd Brugman, T-O-D-D-B-R-U-G-M-A-N.com. And yep. there's one that's caught my eye, and I I know why it caught my eye, but it's titled Automatic Gravity from yep. 2019. Yep. Um, and, and I'm just wondering, and I'm going to, and if I sound stupid, that's fine. I'm used to it. I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> but... Somewhere in there, it reminds me of something that Escher might have done. There might be a little Escher-esque influence in there. At the same time, it's definitely something that you did. Yeah, well, no, that, that was not stupid at all. And this is going to sound cliche, but there really is nothing stupid to say. Yeah. Um, and Escher... So he hasn't been a modern influence by me, but I would say he was the first artist around the age of 10 that I looked at his work and it fascinated me beyond just, wow, somebody can recreate life. Okay, yes, that's you know amazing to anyone, but he did it in a creative way. Um, yeah. And so I know that still carries through to my work. You know, I've had uh, hundreds of artists that have influenced me since then. So there, that's I'm sure that's absolutely in there. Everything gets in there that you know comes <laughs> yeah. through my head. Uh, but I definitely use, you know, even though it's flat and abstract, there is a sense of dimension. You know, where I'll have uh, geometric shapes with dimension. Uh, there is that's an you know illusionistic effects you know mm -hmm. used. It might not be sure if the square is coming forwards or backwards. 
because I've eliminated years ago adding a lot of shading, uh, oftentimes no shading. Um, and I like to have a balance between uh, organic line work and uh, the polar opposite of, you know, sharp-edged um, geometric shapes that, you know, could be three-dimensional. They don't have to be, but they could be, so it could easily look that way. And, you know, I try and have no negative space. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know, a negative space would be like a background. There's almost no background. Everything is foreground. Everything is positive space. because so I try and use every inch of that canvas in large things if I need to to, to uh, get rid of all the extraneous information and just highlight all the information that I feel that is going to bring forward essentially beauty. You know, it comes down to I'm trying to emote something that's unique to humanity, that's beauty, and I have found a way that I do it between this balance of geometric shapes and line work and color. Obviously, the color palette is very important. Um, I spend a lot of time thinking about that. It gives me a lot of problems, uh, something <laughs> I read a lot about. But yes, uh, there absolutely it's an MC Escher in there. I've recently noticed, even though I've never done graffiti in my life, uh, I, I don't even really like graffiti or street art. Because I was into skateboarding, and a lot of skateboard graphics in the 90s were inspired by graffiti, I just real, real, realized very recently that, I, that some of the dimensional aspects have a graffiti uh, essence to them where they almost are yeah. the way someone would do three-dimensional letters in graffiti, where I didn't even purposely do that. I didn't even necessarily like that when I was younger, but it still has come through subconsciously through my work. Uh, I could talk to you for hours about art, but we won't do that here. But we will wrap <laughs> this up with the Fast Five final questions. No right answer, no wrong answer, just whatever comes to your mind. Are you ready? I'm ready. What is your favorite pipe? So... I'm smoking one of my favorite pipes right now. It's a Caminetto uh, paneled pipe. Mm -hmm. uh, but my favorite one is actually a Nick Johnson Love It that I've had for almost five years now. It's my favorite pipe. But those two, Caminetto paneled and a Nick Johnson Love It, um, both straight. I love straight pipes. And what is your favorite tobacco? St. Bruno. And LG Peretti's Irish Mist, which is a burly blend. And being from Boston, what is your favorite drink? My favorite drink would be a seven and seven. <laughs> or either that or a beer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sometimes a beer. <laughs> when it's time to relax, do you prefer a book, a movie, or music? I prefer a book. Uh, a nonfiction right now what I've been going through and I have right next to me right now I've been going through old issues of Pipes and Tobacco uh, magazine as I'm reading Winter 1995 right now with uh, <laughs> Kent Rasmussen on the cover Yeah, uh, but I've been uh, going through uh, those right now but uh, you're typically a book nonfiction to read about something that's interesting and then sometimes I relax with my wife in the evening and watch Netflix or Google uh, very common actually and smoke a pipe relax and yeah and then finally do you have a favorite pipe smoking related memory favorite pipe smoking related memory is it's a very general memory but it is every time i come home from work 
and I sit on the couch next to my wife. My dog comes up. She often sits between my feet as my feet go out on the couch, and I light up a pipe, and I essentially merge with the couch. And that is comfortable, and I love it. But that could also carry over to getting to work, and sometimes I'm not ready, and I light a pipe right in my studio and just, you know, sit on my stool, and I might let my mind wander as ideas come to me. And it also carries over to that first type of morning, which I often have with a cup of Earl Grey tea before I have my coffee, typically a straight Virginia, and blackjack, and those are just, they're not one particular memory, but they are one particular memory of relaxing with my pipe. And the Instagram account is Todd Brugman, T-O-D-D-B-R-U-G-M-A-N. Todd, thank you very much. This is absolutely fascinating, and I... I'll tell you, next time I'm up in Boston, I'm coming by the studio and we're going to hang out and smoke a pipe and I'm going to I'm gonna check out some art. Please do. And anyone who's in Boston can look me up, come by my studio, smoke a pipe. I'd love for you to come by, share a pipe with you, talk about art, talk about anything. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm truly humbled and flattered that you asked me. It's really great to be on and talk to you. And we'll be back in just a minute. A Savinelli pipe is a testament to a long legacy, fortified by well-worn hands and destined to be enjoyed for generations. For over 150 years, Savinelli has been dedicated to sourcing the world's finest briar, committed to pushing the boundaries of pipe design, and devoted to the tradition of Italian pipe making. Savinelli is more than a mark. They're a way to help you make your mark, and like you, there can only be one Savinelli. This is Internet Radio. And we are back. Do check out uh, Todd's Instagram and his website. A lot of cool stuff. And just, uh, you know, just a fascinating guy. All right, for music, uh, no pipe relation here, except uh, Ryan Bingaman sent this in, and he said, uh, I did want to make a suggestion on a song to play. The song is called One One Day by Matisiyahu, uh, Matthew Paul Miller. He's a uh, Hebrew, uh, he goes by his Hebrew name and is an American Jewish reggae singer, rapper, beatboxer, alternative rock musician, uh, and this song is truly my happy song while I'm having one of those days. So uh, this is uh, One Day by Matisiyahu. Sometimes I lay under the moon, I thank God I'm breathing, and I pray, don't take me soon, cause I am here for a reason. Sometimes in my tears I drown, but I never let it get me down, so when negativity surrounds, I know
Matisiyahu is spelled M-A-T-I-S-Y-A-H-U. I actually bought the song on iTunes, and I love it. So thanks to Ryan for sending that in. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. And in the mailbag, if you remember, if you have a comment or question, email me directly, Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at PipesMagazine.com, or you can go on to Pipes Magazine and post a comment right there. Steve emailed me with this saying, and he said, been enjoying the Novice Pipe Smoker series. It's been nice to hear others that have gone through the same trials and tribulations that I've gone through, and at times am still going through. I've begun to notice a common theme in response to your aha moment question, uh, that being the realization that it's okay for a pipe to go out and relight. As a former and still occasional cigar smoker, that realization made a big difference. Wish I had known that when I first gave the pipe a try 30 years ago. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, I wish I, uh, you know, come to grips with that, too. And going back to last week's show with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Devo, uh, Dino writes, A truly fascinating and wide-ranging conversation with Lieutenant Colonel retired Devo. I also really enjoyed the wonderful Paul Kelly and and Carrie Coker Quartet, an underappreciated group. The easy and fluid interplay of Carrie on vibes and Paul's bass is perfect for a night with pipe and slippers. Uh, getting advice about Latakia blends from you is like hearing the virtues of Group 1 pipes from Rich Esserman, but thanks for trying, Dino. Yeah, I just went off of historical sales data. I had nothing else. Uh, and then Casey Ghost says, another good show. I didn't care much for your recommendation of heavy, of heavy Latakia blends until the last one. Uh, Nightcap just uh, just <laughs> stands the test of time. I'm amazed that the various blenders have basically left it alone. Your guest was articulate and sensible, really enjoyed the way he described the Air Force. Just a bunch of guys hanging out and blowing things up on occasion. As an artillery guy, I'm not very fond of the Air Force guys myself, but when you need those guys, they can be a gift from God. Provided it doesn't cause them to miss their afternoon tea time. <laughs> then they get a little grumpy. <laughs> so I must be a grumpy guy because I, you know, four o'clock, boy, I need that cup of coffee. All right, again, comments, questions, email me, Brian, at pipesmagazine.com or post them on the Pipes Magazine radio show page. And uh, rant time is coming up next. This is Phil Morgan, General Manager of Missouri Meerschaum Corncob Pipes in Washington, Missouri. Our mission since 1869 has been to produce great smoking pipes that anyone can afford. We guarantee our pipes won't be your most expensive, but they just might be the ones you smoke the most. At Missouri Meerschaum Company, we don't just sell our corncob pipes. We grow them, make them, and smoke them. Missouri Meerschaum, Washington, Missouri, since 1869.
file this one under uh, advice from an elder. Yeah, I'm not elderly. I'm uh, just an elder. But uh, here it is. Uh, don't be afraid. Don't ever be afraid to tell truth to power. Give constructive criticism. This has come up twice in my life in the past month where other people were afraid to, uh, you know, tell the truth and tell truth to power when the situation wasn't right. And then if it wasn't right, just proceed with the next level of the escalator, you know, of, of the escalator. Don't be afraid to ever tell truth to power. But here's the here's the kicker. Not only can you tell them, you've got to tell them what's wrong, but you also have to give them an option of how to fix it. And if you come across somebody in your life that is in a position of power and doesn't want to receive truth with an option of how to fix it, then you need to get away from those people because those people are megalomaniacal, uh, you know, idiot. They're, they're just mean people, but get away from them. But if you're in the workplace situation and you have a boss or a boss's boss that is a good person and wants to really do the best that they can, which most people really want to do, don't be afraid to tell them the truth. Give them the options of alternative ways to do stuff. In one point in my life uh, a while back, I told one of my bosses, here's how I think we could do it. The boss said, well, let's do it this way. I said, okay, you're the boss. We'll do it this way. And if it doesn't work out, we will readdress it. And I might have said something to the effect of, hey, you're in charge. So go ahead. I'll just take your money and keep doing it the wrong way until we figure out that my way is the right way, which may not have been the smartest way to word that. But just don't be afraid to tell truth to power. Like, you know, if you think this show really sucks, well, tell me. It's probably true, too. So there you go. All right. Uh, thank you very much to Todd for joining me. Thank you all for tuning in. And until next time. the clouds when we're together just sing a song and think about sunny weather happy Everything that guy just says, bullshit. Thank you. <laughs>